And take out your Bibles and turn to Matthew. We just finished the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and now we begin the first book of the New Testament. Matthew's first in the Gospels listed. It came this way because initially people thought that it was the first Gospel written. We're pretty certain it wasn't the first Gospel written. All of the Gospels were written very early after the life of Christ. I mean, within 35 years, I'd, it's my position that within 35 years, all the gospel accounts were written. Mark was probably the, probably the first one written. But Matthew, being um, from a Jewish person coming out of Jerusalem, would have gotten circulation very rapidly. So it makes sense that people uh, thought of it as the first one to be written. And so it stands as the first book in the New Testament. Well, who was Matthew? We're not positive because it's not unusual for authors of gospel narrative uh, to leave their name out because they don't want any focus on themselves. But the early church fathers testify in unison that this is Levi, who is called Matthew by Jesus, one of the apostles. Eusebius, who is the first historian of the church, really says without any hesitation this was Matthew the apostle. Irenaeus before him, who we look to for many statements about the early church's acceptance of the Bible and other practices of the church, also testifies, this is Matthew. And Origen, probably the most brilliant of the early church fathers, he also says, this is Matthew. Matthew, the former tax collector who was called from his vocation to follow Christ. Matthew, a man who is highly educated, He was at least trilingual. He had to have known Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic to be in the profession he was in. It's likely he knew other dialects as well. It makes sense by God's providence that he would be one to pen this gospel. Interestingly, he was also someone um, who ministered directly to the Jewish people, we understand from church history as well. Uh, A personal passion of his would be for the Jews to come to believe in Christ. So as he writes this gospel account by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of course, his particular angle with his personality involved as the Spirit uses it would be to appeal to the Jewish people to believe in Christ as the Messiah. Uh, But he doesn't do it in a gentle fashion. He presents Christ for who he is. He is the Messiah, but he is also the king, and he has a new kingdom. It's not the kingdom you're expecting. It's a better kingdom than that. It's better than the kingdom of Rome, and it's better than any reconstituted kingdom of Israel you can imagine. So Matthew has this in mind as he presents Christ as the Messiah King. And we see that unfold in this gospel. The underlying theme of Christ is the king of his own kingdom and what this kingdom looks like for those who are his. Uh, This pervades everything Matthew says. Of course, it's because it pervades everything that Jesus says, and that's on display in this gospel account. I want you now to follow as I read the opening verses of this gospel. This is Matthew's gospel, and this is for us, his people. And it's for all those uh, who need to know of the person of Christ. This is this declaration. That's what the gospel is, a declaration of Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron 
the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimadab, and Amimadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatiel, and Shelatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Boyad, and Aboyad the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, we come before you at the beginning of another journey through your word. At this time, we open the gospel of Matthew. We ask for your Holy Spirit to give us help along the way. Please illumine our minds so that we can understand the message of your word and that so we, so we can also apply the truths that we learn. Ultimately, Lord, we want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection which gives our lives meaning, power, and purpose. Help us to be well introduced today, well prepared for the weeks to come, and I pray this through Christ. Amen. Now, we've been prepared through Genesis to read through genealogies. Now, you might have thought to yourself, back at your English days when you're taking classes on writing stories and such, the best way to start anything is your introduction being something that grips people. I mean, it lays hold of them and it gives them a reason to keep reading. Maybe if you were going to write the greatest story that was ever told, you would, at least by conventional wisdom, start like Mark started. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That'll catch your attention. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, draws our attention back to a prophecy from 700 years prior. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark really ropes us in. We want to know what he's going to say next about Christ. Maybe you might do it the way Luke did it, who is more a historian at heart. Luke starts, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that we have seen accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the, world, the word that have delivered them to us. 
He's letting us know he's got some, some major sources here. They're going to tell us the exact story of that story everyone wants to know. So he's, he's got us listening now. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus. He's putting this on the record, writing to a high-ranking official. He wants everyone to see what he's about to display. And why? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's another way you could introduce the greatest story that's ever been told, the greatest history that's ever been relayed. Or you could do it the way John did it, John the Apostle. He does it in the most magnificent way, the lofty language. He starts his telling of the gospel In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. That's how he starts. That's got everybody's attention. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator God. That's who I'm going to tell you about. This man that walked on the earth, lived and died and rose again, this is God. That's how John starts it. Without him, nothing that was made was made. In him was life, and the life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What a beginning. What an introduction. That has to be textbook. Uh, that's the way you start something from our conventional wisdom. Well, what about Matthew? What, what's with this? The book of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if we go by that too quickly, it won't stand out to us. And then he goes into one father after one son and another father after son. And we notice some important names, and we'll look at some of those. But recognize that in God's wisdom in crafting all four of these gospel accounts, each of them has its own way to grip its audience. And for much of the world over, starting with ancestry is actually very profound. It's not so much to us because we don't think this way anymore, at least not for the most part. Think about how who we come from comes into play. Most of us don't really talk much about our family up front. It usually takes some time before a question might come of, who is your parent and what do they do? Mostly today, what do we do? We get to know each other a little bit. Where are you from? We want to know where you're from because we want to draw all sorts of judgments based on where you are from. Now, I've come to discover if you're from Kansas City, you tell people, I'm from the Midwest. That's what you say. But people will identify things about you based on where you are from. That's how we know it. So imagine if uh, that kind of import played out in this particular text. It would list all the places he came from, and you would derive all sorts of judgments on the basis of it. It would have some impact about his identity. But in antiquity, especially at this time in world history, ancestry was huge. It said everything about what you might judge concerning a person. Uh, If they came from this person as their parents or this people group, we can know this about them. So this is very important that Matthew, the only one of the four gospel writers to go this route out of the gate. Luke gives genealogy. Uh, All of them mention some level of his genealogy. But Matthew has something in particular he's trying to display here for his primarily Jewish audience at the start. He wants to give Jesus rooting in history And he also wants to declare what he accomplished in that history on the basis of what his genealogy said about him. It's very important that he sets it up this way, and it would be very interesting to the Jewish reader. It starts the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It doesn't just say Jesus. Jesus Christ, 
So the declaration is that Jesus is the Christ. And what he'll say next in genealogy is to prove that he's historical, he's real, and that he is the anointed one that we've all been waiting for. Uh, Christ simply means the anointed one. It's the Greek for Messiah. He is the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. This is the genealogy. This is the genesis of the one who is the anointed Savior of us all. This is really a more profound beginning than we might imagine, especially compared to some of the more wordy or loftier versions we read in the other Gospels. But Matthew provides something the others don't, and this creates a fuller picture. People would hear that this is not a mythological hero figure made up by some. This is a man who is rooted in history, but this is also one who is identified with centuries of prophecy, and he is definitely the one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and so forth. R.C. Sproul tells a story of a Bible translator who was working in a place where much was made of ancestry like this. It was kind of lost on them at first because they were working so hard at getting translations done. And there was one particular very able translator who had still been working for seven years before she started to put into actual writing the language that she had studied over those years living with the people. And then it was a several-year process before the first book of the New Testament was translated into their language. Now, to get it out quicker, she skipped some sections, at least initially, always intended to finish it out. But trying to get the meat of the story of the gospel to the people immediately, skipped over this genealogy to begin with, and then started circulating the copies once they were brought in by these trucks from a distant publisher. But to her dismay and the team's dismay, the people, when they first got them, they weren't as interested in the written copies as they thought they would. In fact, they were more interested in in the trucks coming in and the whole spectacle of bringing them into the village than actually the books, the translations themselves. And this really bothered them as a team, not understanding why. Well, sometime later, they finished out the whole New Testament. And especially in Matthew, finished the genealogy portion and so forth. She has sat down with tribal leaders and explained to them um, the significance of the new translation they had done, that they included all the parts that they didn't have before. And this intrigued the chief greatly. In fact, he was immediately uh, taken by reading the whole of the copies. The chief said to her after reading the genealogy, so you're trying to say that this Jesus you've been telling us about for these last 10 years is a real person. She said, yes, of course he is. He said, I thought you were telling us a story about some mythical character, essentially. And they had plenty of those stories that they knew were made up. But this Jesus is rooted in history when he sees his genealogy, his legitimate genealogy, that he actually was there and did the things that the rest of the New Testament describes. It's so important that Jesus be rooted in history, and Matthew recognizes this for the Jewish people, but the world over, people appreciate this tie to ancestry. Now, the ancestry as Matthew gives it also provides something else for us that will help us as we start to go through the book together. You need to know that the genealogy he gives isn't exhaustive. There are individuals he doesn't include. He's trying to accent three important people, though, in this history. He starts with the person of Abraham, who's so critical to Jewish thinking, the father of the Jews, but also the blessing to the nations. All those we learn in Galatians who are true sons and daughters of Abraham are those who believe on Christ. 
Matthew knows this, but he starts with Abraham. But then the next section of names, he's accenting the person of David, who is the Jewish king, who is also a forecast of the eternal king. So Abraham and David are in the first two sections of this genealogy, and the third leads to the person of Jesus himself, the fulfillment. So Matthew carefully crafts this genealogy to show Jesus coming from Abraham, Jesus coming from David, and more subtly, but not so subtle as we get into the people's names, and you'll remember many of them, hopefully, from Genesis. Jesus is a Savior who comes from us, if you will, and he comes for us, not just the Jews. Matthew starts out this way, hooking the Jewish readers, but explaining to the Jewish leaders who this Messiah King is and the wide range of what his ministry will mean. Now, let's look at the, passages, the passage together and just see some of these sections for what they are. First, the first listing of names is the gospel writer showing how Christ comes from Abraham, a very important feature of who he is as the Messiah. He's the anointed seed of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. After he says the son of Abraham in verse 1, the next several verses show the line of Abraham. Names we are familiar with now. The father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of, notice what it says, Judah and his brothers. The whole story of Joseph floods back to, to the reader's mind. It's one little sentence, but you know the impact and import of saying Judah and his brothers. We remember that. That's in the line of Jesus. We remember the importance of Judah in this story. And of course, we also remember Judah with Perez, Tamar, the whole Tamar incident. And he lists the various names that come from Abraham to tie Jesus to this. Now, by the time we learn of the promised seed through Abraham, there has been a buildup in Genesis 1 to Genesis 12 with Abraham. The buildup is the promise of a second Adam who will be sent in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman the anointed seed. Now Abraham, he'll be the father of that seed going forward. So there is this concept of Messiah or Savior tied in even to the name of Abraham, much more so in David the king. But with the name Abraham being tied to Christ, we recognize the Abrahamic promises that are never only focused on Jewish people. It's from the Jewish people the Messiah would come, but it's that great promise among several promises to Abraham that Abraham, I will give to you a son. You'll become a great nation and you will become a blessing to the world. This is why it's so important that there is a reference here to Abraham. Jesus comes from Abraham. The anointed seed from Abraham. The anointed one, the Messiah. Matthew is writing to present Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah, and he begins with this connection, and that first listing of names does just this. Secondly, I want you to notice the other association that Matthew gives. This gives a more intended picture of Christ and his role as king, which is important for Jewish evangelism up front in those days. It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here, Matthew is making a particularly Jewish appeal to start thinking of Christ for who he is. He is that king that God promised through David. Stop looking for a different kind of king. 
this is a much better king than all those kings. Those kings that have preceded, clearly, in whatever picture you had of a king, he does not suffice compared to what Jesus has done and is doing. He's part of David's kingly line. Unmistakably, he's saying, Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews, who just been, of course, when they read this gospel, had been crucified by the Jews. Look at the passage and see some of these names, because these are kings that come from David. Verse 6, Jesse, the father of David the king. David was the father of who? Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And then Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam, Abijah. Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, um, under David, there was really the high point of Israel in the monarchy. Solomon, there was a a richer period, but as far as devotion to God, it was really towards the end of David's kingship. But there's not commentary about that in in, in this genealogy. But every Jewish person would know all those stories right away. And they'd have an opinion about, like when you list the presidents of the United States, just list the last 10 of them, Everybody here will have a little different take or angle on each of them as they come. They conjure up things in your mind. The Jewish reader would see these names, Rehoboam. Rehoboam, that's when the kingdom split. That's when things really went, started to go poorly. Judah and Israel split. That, that, wasn't a, that was not a good time, they'll think back. And then some of the other names, there's some good ones in there. I mean, you've got uh, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king of Judah, the southern kingdom. You got Josiah, the the child king. So there are some good memories, but there's a lot of bad ones in here too. Really bad ones. In fact, to the point where God split the kingdom and then the northern kingdom got taken captive by Assyria and eventually even Judah, still the chosen nation, taken captive by the Babylonians. That's the deportation. So the section before the deportation, that's all about David and his kingly line and how the kings kept coming from David. He doesn't name all the kings here. You have to get Luke together with this and try to put them all together to get the fullness of the, all, all, the whole genealogy. One kind of here Matthew focuses a bit on Joseph's line where it's more Mary's line with Luke. But the point Matthew is making is he comes clearly from the Davidic line. And though he was a carpenter from Nazareth, he is the rightful king of the Jews. And the king of the Jews, the eternal king of the Jews, is the king of the world. That's what he's working towards telling the story concerning. All of this rooting comes back from the time of Samuel when the prophet Samuel was called by God to declare all these things for the future. In 2 Samuel 7, the prophet, speaking for God, says to David, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. This is the promise. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Then he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down, David, I will raise up your offspring after you. Sure, that's Solomon up front, but we know it's not Solomon ultimately. Like we see in that Old Testament prophetic language, we caught glimpses of this in Genesis, the language is immediate but has a longer, better fulfillment waiting. And he, speaking to David like this, called the Davidic promise or covenant, is promising there will be an eternal king on your throne, David. Your family is going to take this throne. Now, if you were watching the history, you're like, boy, that sure doesn't look very good. But this is what makes Jesus stand out. This is why Matthew wants the reader to know this is the son of David. This is the eternal king that back in the days of the Davidic covenant where he said, I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Well, that's not going to happen with any king of Israel on earth. It would take the king of heaven coming to be the kingdom, the king on this earth. 
This is one of the reasons the kingdom of heaven is descriptive of what Jesus brings. The Lord's anointed is a favorite way to refer to the king who is on the throne. The Lord's anointed, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Messiah king. Matthew is accenting the procession of the throne so as to show Christ as the king of the Jews. The Messiah, yes, but the Messiah king, to be more precise. Now, we have seen by these two first sections how Abraham and David are key figures in the genealogy. But by the third section, as it unfolds, and then combining it with just the general flow and character of the people mentioned, we see that Matthew's doing something else here. He doesn't want anyone to become proud of their genealogy because they're Jewish. He wants to express how broken and dysfunctional all that is. And even despite that, Christ still comes to save. He doesn't come from a righteous line. He comes from an unrighteous line. God safeguards him and the seed. But make no mistake, basically Matthew wants to remind his countrymen, his brothers and sisters ethnically, that we have nothing to lay hold of on the basis of that background. Jesus came from us, the brokenness of all of us. And that includes the Jews, includes the Gentiles. And he comes for all of us, the Savior of the world, for those who will believe. He didn't just come to save the Jews, not in the slightest. And Matthew's approach here says this all the more loudly. He's very careful who he picks to name in this genealogy. Really what he's saying by naming the people he names, regardless of your tribe or your people, Christ has come for you. Regardless of your family line or your background, that does not stop you, Christ comes for you. Regardless of the scandal in your family tree, immediate or distance, whatever it may be, Christ comes for you. Whatever may be deemed illegitimate from your past, Christ comes from all that and he comes for you. Regardless of the sins that you have committed or your parents have committed or your grandparents have committed that you're all still paying for in some way, Christ comes for you in the midst of all of that kind of brokenness and all that mess. The genealogy of Christ shows that he is from us and he is for us. How is this so? Just a few ways you can note it right up front. You probably see it obviously enough. First, he does something unusual in antiquity. In an official kind of sounding genealogy, he lists several women along the way. Now, we would have no trouble with that in this day and age, speaking of the matriarchs in our family. That wasn't done often in antiquity. It's not just that he uses five women in this genealogy. He refers to not the matriarchs of Israel. I mean, Sarah, what a hero. Why not mention her? How about Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, these names? No, guess who he names? Tamar, the Canaanite. Rahab of Jericho, Ruth of Moab, Bathsheba of the Hittites. Three of these women were definitely not Jewish, maybe four of them. And all of them had some kind of baggage in their life, either thrust upon them or because they did whatever they did. And he wants to be sure that we recognize they're part of the line of Christ. None of us could look at the line of Christ, the person of Christ, and not relate. Just because you come from this or that family or this or that background, that is in no way a hindrance for Jesus saving you. He looks at all that and he says, I know that kind of mess. He's seen it all. All of it's in his background. Even his immediate family. Now think of these ladies just for a moment. Remember the story of Tamar because in every case there's some guy that was a mess too. 
You have the case of Judah in all that he did wrong in his family. All the ways in which he defied God's promises through Abraham to himself. He went outside of the faith and married and had two loser sons. Both die, leaving Tamar, and he was going to leave Tamar out of society until she tricked him by dressing up as a prostitute and then him purchasing her as a prostitute. This is the family line of Christ. It says, Selman, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab. Rahab the prostitute, who God used to save Israel. But make no mistake, this is not the matriarch of Israel we're thinking of here, yet God is not in, in any way stopped from whatever it is we've been part of to still utilize us for his saving purposes. We see it with Rahab. Ruth's situation was part of a, a larger mess of a family situation where, his, where Ruth was married to a, a, a Jew living outside of the promised land when he shouldn't have been. Then he dies. He, she goes back because there's no other options for her with her mother-in-law, who didn't want her to come with her, Naomi, and marries eventually Boaz, and from Boaz eventually comes Jesse, David, and Christ. Verse 6 is probably one of the more interesting allusions. David was the father of Solomon. doesn't say by Bathsheba. And the reason is not to do disrespect to the person of Bathsheba, but the wife of Uriah would draw every Jewish listener into that whole sordid story that I'll bet you most did not want to talk about as the glorious part of the past of Israel. But Matthew wants to make sure no one escapes this. Remember, Solomon, the king that you talk about as being so grand and glorious, he was fathered by David and the wife of another guy who David so dishonorably disrespected in multiple ways. There's nowhere to run for pride here. This is a story of us all the dysfunction, the broken mess that you see in humanity and all of us can relate with. And Jesus comes from this. Now, Jesus isn't affected by it the way we are because he's the second Adam. But he comes from humanity in this respect, the God-man. When I call the sermon the genesis of Jesus, please understand what I mean. I don't mean the start of Jesus. He's eternal. I mean what it says in the first verse, the genealogy, the, ge- the beginnings of Jesus and his incarnation, the background leading up to it, and then the person of Christ himself, what he's come from. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. You remember there were whispers about Mary when she was found to be with child, yet not, not, not married yet. Certainly that even would have followed Jesus in his life. So Jesus understands those kinds of of associations. And that's the point I think Matthew is making in the way he picks the people he picks. I mean, I picked a little bit on the situation with these women, but Abraham was no prize much of his life. Isaac wasn't either. Jacob certainly wasn't. We know that. Judah, who not only did what he did regarding the Tamar incident, he's the one, if you remember, hey, let's sell our brother to the Egyptians. That Judah. Then there's David and his many sins. And the terrible evil kings of Israel. Just one more to accent, to recognize the depth of what Matthew's doing here. He lists Manasseh in the line of Christ because he's in the line of Christ. But I don't think we fully appreciate how bad some of these Israelite kings were. I mean, as bad as you can imagine, any of the leaders we've had nationally or even uh, regionally for years, none of them are like what you see with Manasseh. Listen to some of the way he is typified in his kingship, 2 Kings 21. Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before the people of Israel. He was worse than the Canaanites. 
he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He adopted all the various religions and, and elevated them. And it says that he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He went into the church, you might say, and erected all of these things. Now you do see some of that for sure in our day and age. But this is the king promoting all this. And then it says he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger. Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. He was worse than what came before them. And the Lord said to his prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That's a bad king. Most of them were bad kings. Yet through all of these kings, through all these tragedies represented in these names, all these sorrows represented in these names, all this hardship, suffering, misery, sin, all these battles, through all these names, Jesus comes from them to redeem it all, to redeem us all. Jesus is not unrelatable. His, Matthew introduces Jesus this way. It's a reminder to us who we're going to study in this gospel relates with us exactly. He understands us completely. He comes as one who can relate with the brokenness of this fallen world. He came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And he's not ashamed to enter into this mess and dysfunction that we experience to redeem us. So Matthew introduces the story of Jesus with a genealogy. It's true. The genealogy is meant to root Jesus in actual history, and it's meant to show that he is the Messiah King. This would have resonated with the first audience, but it has been resonating with every audience since, and it will for us too. The very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 18, the first verse for the next sermon in this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for this gospel account in the beginning of this time of concentration on Matthew's gospel. By your providence, we're in the midst of a season of reflection on the advent of our Lord Jesus. May this timely study of his genealogy give us assurance about who Christ is and what he came to do. May each of us sense the essential and eternal relevance of Jesus Christ to our lives. May each of us grow in our assurance as our view of Jesus becomes clearer and our love for him grows deeper. I pray this in his name. Amen. Let's together respond by turning